the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, and today is a special day. Uh, as we are recording here in the morning on the campus of my alma mater, Wheaton College, with a great friend of the show, our friend David French. David, welcome to Wheaton. How are you, man? I'm doing great. I've never been to Wheaton before, believe it or not, and I love it. It's a great place. That's awesome. So yeah. Those of you who don't remember David, he is a senior editor at The Dispatch, contributing writer at The Atlantic, co-host of Advisory Opinions and Good Faith Podcast. Other than that, you don't have much going on these <laughs> days. Uh, but what brings you to Wheaton? I am speaking tonight at 7 o'clock at the Barrows Auditorium. Barrows Auditorium, yeah. Yep. Barrows Auditorium. I'm talking about the crisis of free speech on campus and off campus. So, and how uh, liberty cannot survive animosity. Wow. So, uh, if you're interested in free speech in America, the law and the culture of free speech and cancel culture and all of the things that dominate conversation about uh you know our discourse coming out to barrows auditorium absolutely so that's tonight at barrows auditorium i believe it's 7 p.m david will be here on the campus of uh wheaton college uh well let's just start there cancel culture yeah uh, you and i have talked a lot about that but but you've got a great passion about uh, free speech cancel culture mm-hmm. what you see going on why is yeah. that a passion of yours why is this such a big deal for you yeah well you know i think of Free speech is one of the foundational values of our civilization. So it's something that um, is kind of core to who we are as a country, and it's kind of necessary to who we are as a country. You can't have a country as big as ours, as diverse as ours, with so many different values in our nation, so many different faiths, um, without the liberty to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. If our politics becomes one where... When one side wins, it can suppress not just not just enact policies that it likes, but actually suppress the points of views of the losers. Mm. Then you're going to see instability, greater instability than we already have. You're going to see animosity, greater animosity than we already have. And you know, one of the greatest short declarations uh, in support of free speech ever written comes from uh, Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, yeah. uh, when he was banned from speaking in Boston right before the Civil War. And it was uh, a plea for free speech in Boston. He calls free speech the great moral renovator of society and government. Mm. And he calls it the dread of tyrants, that free speech is the dread of tyrants. And you see this overseas. You know, you see this as Putin is rounding up protesters. Uh, the last thing that he wants, the last thing that he's going to permit is free ex- a free exchange of ideas over his war in Ukraine. Because it is, you know, free speech would be for him a dread of that you know, it would yeah. be a dread of that tyrant. And it feels like, I'd love to know if you agree with this, it feels like 
things from both ends of our political spectrum are getting worse and worse yes. with this. That it's coming from both sides. Yeah. So what do you see going on currently, but then also kind of projecting? What are your worries going ahead five years, ten years, a generation yeah. down the road here? So there's this um, theory called horseshoe theory mm-hmm. that some of your listeners may be familiar with. And essentially what it says is that as people become more extreme, they move closer to their opponents. <laughs> so the extremes start to meet after a while. Mm-hmm. And and you do see this in American free speech, um, in the controversies over American free speech. For every outrage against free speech that exists in, say, the state of California, where it's a very, very blue government, I can name you an outrage against free speech that's happening in the state of Florida with a very red government. Yeah. And both of these governments over the last four to five years have doubled down in engaging in uh, censorship or threatening censorship against political opponents. And and so this has become rampant. Yeah. And it seems like the redder or bluer a jurisdiction is, the more tempted they are towards censorship. And, and part of that is because um, we, we're clustering now. We live in like-minded communities. And and so we can't even really understand the other side's point of view. Well, we just know a caricature of them, and the caricature that we know is often a grotesque caricature. Yeah, and you yeah. think, what value is there in allowing them to speak? Yeah. You know, so you have things like in California, they tried to force pro-life preg- uh, crisis pregnancy centers to advertise for. Uh, free or low-cost abortions that was struck down by the Supreme Court. You have things in Florida like this so-called Stop Woke Act where mm. they are restricting the free speech of professors and restricting the free speech of private citizens and private corporations um, along approved lines on, on racial topics of racial controversy, and that has been blocked by courts so far. Mm. Um, and so these are these are direct legal attacks on free speech, and you know, very threatening if they're allowed to spread and they're not checked by the courts, very threatening to our, you know, our liberties as citizens. Yeah. Ironically, you say the tribalism, it feels like social media, which should be kind of a bastion of free speech. You would Mm -hmm. think it should. The people I know who are most on social media are the most kind of polarized and tribal. So speak to that a little bit, the the social media, what it's doing to this conversation. Yeah, it's, you know, in one way, we live in a golden age of free speech in the sense that more regular folks have more opportunity to have more people hear from them than any time in history. So if you're like angry Uncle Bob in (laughs) 1994... Uh How are you going to make your voice heard, right? You could write a letter to the editor, and maybe they'll take it or maybe they won't. You can vote, certainly. Um, Maybe you go into, you know, as some people did, and go in front of a courthouse and protest. But, you know, people give those folks wide berth. They don't want to hear about them. Well, now you can sit there, and maybe one of your tweets will catch fire. One of your, your Facebook posts, all your friends and family will see it. So they'll all get a piece of your mind. So in one sense, we have that greater ability to speak than ever before. But in another sense, the way that social media works on our minds, it has – it's not to say that all speech on social media is bad. Mm -hmm. I I just tweeted out one of the most phenomenal team pictures I've ever seen in my life yesterday. (laughs) The Santa Cruz cross-country team. It was phenomenal. It was amazing. (laughs) Uh, So there's fun content on there, but it also has served the purpose of amplifying and, and it really preys on the worst part of our human nature Agreed. that we're, you know, the same way that we're, we're always going to look at the car crash, right? We're always going to look at the bad tweet or the terrible Facebook post. And because it gets that attention, it creates this attention economy. 
And there's this term that I love, and I can't remember who coined it, so I apologize if you're listening and it's your term, <laughs> um, but called uh, created a class of people called conflict entrepreneurs. Oh, interesting. And so what a conflict entrepreneur is is somebody who quite literally makes their living um, by generating conflict. And this is something you just see all over social media. Absolutely. Uh, so at David A. French, if you want to see that picture and some positive social media at David A. French on <laughs> <Sometimes>. Twitter. Uh, <laughs> and uh, apologies to my Uncle Bob. I have an Uncle Bob out there. So, you know, yeah, but he's not an angry Uncle Bob. So I'm, he's good. I'm, <laughs> yes, I don't mean to slander Uncle Bob. Only Uncle Bob. Yes. Uh, so the $64,000 question and probably what you're dealing with in your talk tonight at Barrow's Auditorium here on at Wheaton College at mm-hmm. 7 p.m. What do we do as the church? What do we do as Christians? What's our role if yeah. this is our landscape now? Yeah, well, you know, in many ways, this is the, ab- the landscape where the Christian witness should be bra- blazing forth with radiant light mm-hmm. because what other community in America is taught to love your enemies? What other community mm-hmm. is taught to bless those who persecute you? What other community is taught to in- define yourselves? How are you... How are you known by the fruit of the Spirit? And what are the fruit of the Spirit? You know, kindness, patience, go go on. And you're talking about these virtues that are extraordinarily countercultural. Yeah, yeah. So this should be our time. This should be our moment. <laughs> Is it, though? Is it, though? We have some bad days. <laughs> we have some bad, bad days. And so, you know, one of the things, especially talking to a Christian audience that I'm trying to get people to understand is that we cannot be just like the world mm-hmm. in how we interact in politics. So when we say, you know, for example, what makes you distinctive in your Christian witness for politics? Well, you're gonna, there's usually a list of issues. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm pro-life. I'm pro-life. I'm for religious liberty. I'm for religious liberty. You go down these lists of issues that are sort of really characterize uh, Christian political engagement, and that's what we're taught is to focus on issues. But yeah. what I'm saying is you cannot – You cannot neglect the how you support these issues. It's politics isn't just a what. It's not just a laundry list of policy positions. And so, you know, I I circle back to Micah 6.8. What does the Lord require of you, O man? What is good? Act justly. We got that down, like, you know, tweeting like our hair's on fire about whatever (laughs) we're passionate about. But then the next two come. Act justly. Love kindness, mm-hmm. well, that becomes a problem. <laughs> and then the last one, walk humbly yeah. before the Lord your God. You know, we're furious at each other over competing ideas about complicated things. Mm. And, you know, when you think about it, if you think about it for, you know, really any length of time, and you think, wait, have I really figured out how to achieve racial justice in America to such an extent? That I can be livid at everybody who disagrees with me? Am I the one? Have I done it after 300 and some odd years? That's me? Yeah. Um, no, 400. It's been more than 400 years since the first slaves were brought to our shores. So, well, if it's you, congratulations. You're the one. You're the one, but it's not you. Right. And so, and it's not me. It's, you know, we, we have to be, and one of the values of free speech is being open to dissenting ideas is good for us. Yeah. It's good for us. And so that's one thing that, you know, you're, you, what I found is you just have to get to these foundational reasons for free speech. You just can't use words like free speech yeah. and expect everyone to agree with you anymore. Yeah. So th- it's going to be a fascinating talk tonight. I'd encourage you, if you're anywhere near Wheaton College, be here at 7 p.m. at Barrows Auditorium. You can hear David talk much more about free speech. 
uh, and why it matters. So while we've got David, we've got him for the whole hour. Uh, I want to talk to him next about his article called Evangelical Decentered Jesus, uh, looking at that survey recently uh, released by Lifeway Research and Ligonier Ministries that has kind of the evangelical world trying to figure out what it all means. We're going to talk to David about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. It's a special day here on The Common Good as we are joined in person here on the campus of Wheaton College by our friend, David French. David is a senior editor at The Dispatch, contributing writer at The Atlantic. And David is in town to speak at Wheaton College tonight for the Wheaton Center for Faith, Politics, and Economics. He's speaking about free speech at Barrow's Auditorium tonight at 7 p.m. I couldn't encourage you enough to come and be a part of that if you're anywhere near Wheaton College. So, David, thanks for being so generous with your time. And, uh, there was a fascinating, Aubrey and I have talked about it multiple times in the yeah. last couple of weeks, the Lifeway Research and Ligonier Ministries kind of biannual survey about American evangelical theological views. And uh, it was really eye-opening and, to be honest, really troubling. Yeah. So why don't we jump off there? What, what was the most troubling thing about this survey to you? Well, it it was like a 1A and a 1B. (laughs) Okay. So I'm very used to surveys of evangelicals Mm -hmm. that indicate troubling things. That's right. Okay. So, for example, most self-described evangelicals in America go to church once a month or less. Mm -hmm. About 40% go yearly or less. Okay. So we're talking about – but that's self-described evangelicals. That's just somebody who – are you, what are you? I'm evangelical. Yeah. You know, so that's a lot of folks who kind of um, have come to think of themselves as, e- as evangelical because of politics, mm-hmm. right? So you kind of discount that and say, yeah, right, are you, but do, are you really? Mm-hmm. And so what Lifeway and League Ministries did is they said, okay, we're going to further screen. And they had these four questions that uh, were a much narrower subset. So this, if you're going to answer yes to these four questions, I can't remember exactly what they were, but then you're the subset of evangelicals. You're a theological evangelical mm-hmm. or something closer to that. So that was that's what sets up to make everything else troubling. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> because they tried to screen out the casuals, that's right. right, the nominals. They tried to screen them out. And so what did they find? They found that most evangelicals, believe that Jesus was a created being, okay? Um, They found that almost half do not believe in the actual divinity of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So, um, and you could go on and find a lot of really true... Now, fewer evangelicals believe Jesus is a created being than the rest of America. Yay. Um, (laughs) Celebrate, I guess. You know, still most barely think of Jesus as actually God and, and, and not, you know, and, and not man. And so, and so these, these survey questions were troubling on sort of the basics of who Jesus Christ is. And they reflected a number of sort of ancient heresies and it's not like these ancient heresies are being taught all over the place. Right. It's just people aren't being taught who Jesus is. They're not taught orthodoxy. But what are they being taught? 94% know that sex outside of traditional marriage is wrong. So you have a majority, an overwhelming majority who know 
some of the morality, some mm-hmm. of the morality of the mm-hmm. traditional Christian faith, and a majority who don't even know who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's kind of the cart before the horse <laughs> yes. here. And and I wrote a piece about it in the Atlantic, in my Atlantic newsletter, and one of the points that I tried to make is that when when you understand who Jesus is, that this is this isn't just ancillary. This is central stuff. Because you can be a super moral person. You can have an agreement with Christians on sexual morality and be of many faiths yeah. or no faith at all. I have I know atheists who waited until they were married to have sex, you know, and and so that morality, as important as morality is, doesn't define the Christian. Mm. The person of Jesus Christ does. And and so, you know, and one of the points that I made is when you understand Jesus Christ, number one, it's incredibly humbling because you realize that even if you're checking all the boxes of sort of like the main things that Christians talk about in morality— yeah. When you understand Jesus, you still see your own sin Mm -hmm. so clearly (laughs) as contrasted with him. So it's deeply humbling. And then the other thing is it's profoundly hopeful. Mm -hmm. So it's both humbling and hopeful at the same time to know who Jesus is. But when you flip it around and you define Christianity by morality, then that turns into pride and, and divisiveness. Because... Depending on how broadly or narrowly you label the key moral points, and, and unfortunately the church is really sort of centered in on on sex more than other things. And I completely agree with traditional Orthodox Christian morality on sexuality, but that's not the whole thing, right? <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so the when you narrow what is Christian morality, um, you give us the you give the illusion that you can be a righteous person. That's right. And then when you narrow, then you create a lot of division because someone else is standing there or saying, wait a minute, why why have you defined orthodoxy around sexuality when there's there's things like racism, there's things like greed, there's things like gluttony, there's things (laughs) like arrogance, there's things like, you know, and you can just go down the line and... You know, and so what ends up happening is you create sort of narrow sects of Christians that are really fundamentally focused around ancillary issues. Yeah. yeah. So when I read this survey, I'm a pastor, and mm-hmm. Aubrey's a pastor, and uh, we tried to say, okay, what's the answer here? It feels like it's the church that's dropping the ball. Yeah. It's the church. Fun. We can rail at social media and politics. It's the church's job yeah. to disciple their people. So, uh, how do we do better? What is the church doing wrong here? Well, I think one thing is we need to stop presuming everybody knows who Jesus is. Mm. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's funny. I, I grew up in the church, and I heard the gospel from a very young age. My wife grew up in the church in the same denomination of the church. And when we met, when she was in college and I had, had just come out of law school, she, when I was talking to her about the gospel— it was the first time she'd heard the gospel. Mm-hmm. So think about this. How many times do you go? And, and a lot of these these messages are very necessary and very helpful and, and important to people's lives. But sometimes we can get mixed into sermon series after sermon series after sermon series about work mm-hmm. or about marriage or about child rearing or politics or whatever. And... You don't circle back. Mm-hmm. And who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because 
that's what's revolutionary. That's yeah. that's where every everything flows from that. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate that, man, because you're right. As pastors, we can just assume. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure you, you're you from Tennessee. I'm sure it's assumed everybody knows who Jesus is. Yeah, there. Everybody <laughs> or, but now we know we don't. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So fascinating study. You can read David's article at The Atlantic called Evangelicals Decentered Jesus. Uh, David also recently did an article with Tish Harrison Warren over at The New York Times. We're going to circle back to religious freedom and why it matters. Here's the key. Even if you're not religious. Yeah. Going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. And as we've been saying, it's a special day here on The Common Good. We get an hour with our friend David French, who is in town to speak tonight at 7 p.m. at the Barrows Auditorium on the campus of Wheaton College. David will be speaking um, about free speech, cancel culture. What do we as Christians do with that? And so if you are in anywhere close to Wheaton College tonight at 7 p.m., I can't encourage you enough to go and hear David speak. That's at Barrows Auditorium uh, tonight. And if you've missed any of our interviews so far, go get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, review. And David, what we were just talking about was that survey that came out, Lifeway Research, Ligonier Ministries, um, and just the the trend of maybe lack of Bible knowledge and mm-hmm. Jesus knowledge in the evangelical church. How does that then mesh with all the stuff we hear about deconstruction right now? Yeah. You know, to me, it made deconstruction easier to understand mm-hmm. because – if you understand that enormous number, an enormous number of people are encountering Christianity and living Christianity with deeply flawed understandings about who Jesus is, yeah. but very sharp understandings of, about parts of Christian morality, you can begin to see how unstable that is. Yeah. Because the first thing you understand when you encounter this world is that even some of the most vocal people about their morality – uh, conceal hidden sin, or maybe maybe they're quite pure, so to speak, in the thing they emphasize, mm-hmm. but they're prideful about it. They're mm-hmm. arrogant about it, which is its own sin. And so you're going to be, if you're centering Christianity around morality, what's going to end up happening is the older you get, the more you're going to just continually face the failures of people, many of whom are fronting their morality as the definition of Christianity. And you're going to confront this again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing that I think, you know, if you talk to people who've, who've lived a long time in the faith and you, you ask them to sort of recount, like, all of the church scandals they've seen, <laughs> yes, it gets long, yeah. you know, it gets long. And, and so if you're encountering Christian th- Christianity through morality, that can be a shattering experience. Now, that doesn't mean that morality isn't important. Uh, and again, none of this says morality isn't important. But the encounter with Christianity is an encounter with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And the encounter with Jesus is with a person who is not going to fail. Mm. And even better than that, far better than even not going to fail himself, it's that he covers your own failures mm-hmm. because you know you, you're going to fail. Yeah. Um, and, and the more you understand about Jesus, the more you're convicted about your own life on so many different fronts. Um, and, but you understand that you have an advocate, you have a redeemer. And when you're locating 
your faith there. And I, that is where that is where that's the solid rock. Yes. The morality piece of it, again, people are going to fail. You're going to fail. And if it's centered there, that is just that's the house on sand. It's yeah. just going to evaporate. And so it makes starts to make a lot more sense to me the the wave of deconstruction yeah. because it's that where are you centered and if you're centering and where we're going to fail then deconstruction makes all the sense in the world and sometimes deconstruction is necessary before reconstruction Amen. yeah Aubrey and I say that often like what's the purpose of deconstruction yeah. in the end if it's reconstruction right good let's go Jesus deconstructed the apostles faith yeah. <laughs> I mean think about this they spent all this time with him thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're really going to take on the Romans, aren't you? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is all prelude, isn't it? <laughs> and, you know, they they had to, in the most shattering way possible, realize that, you know, Jesus meant what he said yeah. about who he was on every front. And so, um, you know, a lot of people get mad when you say, well, but Jesus deconstructed the apostles. They're like, that's not deconstruction. That's discipleship. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, yes, I I agree that you know discipleship, but discipleship can have a really uh, deconstructing effect if you're if you've constructed yes. something false. Yes, that's a great word. That's a great word. Let me go a different way. Uh, New York Times, you and Tish Harrison Warren, uh, who's been on our show before, she's fabulous. Uh, you wrote, uh, she wrote, "Why religious freedom matters, even if you're not religious." And mm-hmm. so she talked to you. I think a lot of people, especially who might be evangelical, listen to a station like this. Go time out, even if you're not religious. Yeah. Uh, I thought that's why we're, you know, yeah. we, we want religious freedom, but let's be careful here. So why would you say even if you're not religious? Yeah, so religious liberty as we define it in the United States of America is much like free speech of foundational value. And, and a lot of people will say, okay, wait, isn't this just a sort of a giveaway to America's religious communities? You, you, we all get free speech and you get this extra thing called religious freedom mm. that, you know, nobody else gets if you're not religious. Like, well, that's not the way it's been interpreted legally, and and that's not the way it's properly interpreted. Because, believe it or not, atheists enjoy religious freedom rights every bit as much as Christians. And so, if an atheist can enjoy religious liberty, um, a freedom not to believe, a freedom not to uh, act, a freedom to, to not to be coerced, for example, into um, religious faith— well, what is religious liberty? And the, one, the way I tried to frame it with Tish is think of it like this. Think of what religious liberty as the freedom to believe, to speak, and this is very critical, to act. That's the free exercise in accordance with your deepest beliefs mm-hmm. so long as your actions don't interfere with the rights of others. And so that's what religious liberty is at its core. Yeah. And if you ask somebody, do you want to be able to believe, speak, and act in accordance with the things, the, the value system that's most foundational to you? Everybody says yes. Mm-hmm. Everybody says yes. It's just that what that looks like in practice can get messy and you can have conflicting liberty assertions of liberty interests. But that foundational idea of religious liberty that says there is a fundamental moral code that every one of us has, yeah. and that as much as possible, the state is going to protect your ability to live according to that fundamental moral code, that is, again, just as foundational as free speech to our nation. Yeah, and you would know – So. Uh 
Is religious liberty right now really under attack? We always hear that. It's under yeah. attack, under attack. Do you believe it to be really under attack? So this is the way I put it. Right now in the United States, you have greater legal protections for your religious liberty than any time in the whole history of the country. Hmm. And a lot of especially sort of white evangelicals don't understand that because white Protestant power was sort of the ascendant power throughout much of American history. So if you were a white Protestant in the United States of America, you thought you were free, but you had power. Power is not the same thing as liberty. Liberty mm. is what you exercise when you don't have power. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so a lot of other categories of American Christians uh, in, in many other faiths didn't have much power or freedom. So, for example, about 37 states passed these things called Blaine Amendments that were specifically targeted at Catholic institutions um, that denied them. The goal was to protect public schools as Protestant institutions against Catholic encroachment. Blatantly discriminatory. Um, The black Protestant church faced extreme discrimination. And so, you know, if you talk to a lot of folks who are sort of more nationalist in their view and you say, what kind of a... What kind of America are you thinking about, like, you know, from a religious freedom standpoint and cultural values? Often they'll go talk about the earlier parts of the 20th century. Yeah. That was not the golden age for Catholics. <laughs> it definitely wasn't the golden age for black Protestants yeah. in the U.S. And so um, from a liberty standpoint, from a liberty standpoint, where does can the government encroach on your freedom? You have more liberty right now than we've ever enjoyed in the history of the country. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't attacks on that liberty, but they're pretty easily fended off. Uh, One of the ways I put it is that um, the cannon fire is real, but the walls of the Liberty Citadel are very high and strong. Mm. And so you don't have much to fear from legal attacks on religious liberty right now. The, The biggest issue is the same with free speech. It's cultural tolerance not legal liberty. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Again, David is speaking tonight at Barrows Auditorium on the campus of Wheaton College, talking about cancel culture, uh, talking about freedom of speech, stuff that we really need to get our arms on. So if you're near Wheaton, come out tonight at 7 p.m. at Barrows Auditorium. And David is generous enough with his time to stay with us for the rest of the hour. We're going to shoot to all fields with him. Coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined today for the entire hour uh, by David French. David's a good friend of the show, and he's also in the Wheaton area. He's at Wheaton College tonight at 7 p.m. at the Barrows Auditorium to talk about uh, cancel culture, freedom of speech, things that uh, college students, but all of us should be interested and concerned about. And so David will be speaking tonight at 7 p.m. at the Barrows Auditorium. David, thanks so much. This has been a ton of fun uh, having you here with us, uh, not just seeing you on yeah. Zoom. Uh, <laughs> I uh, am so tired of Zoom. Tell you what. I'm tired of it. That is true. Speaking of things we're tired about, let me get your uh, idea about this. Uh, Christian celebrity culture. Oh, gosh. So uh, it, we don't go a week without talking about a major pastor who has failed. Yeah. Uh, and it's getting really disheartening for us in doing this show, talking yes. about this or that. Uh, you know, whether it be the Mark Driscolls with the rise and fall of Mars Hill or out here, Bill Hybels and James mm-hmm. McDonald. What happened with Matt Chandler recently? Yeah. Or, you know, keep the list going and going. Uh, Two-part question. Do we actually have a celebrity culture problem 
in evangelicalism? Is it a problem? 100%. And, all right, speak to yeah. that. Speak to that. So <laughs> here's where I first knew that we really started to have a celebrity problem. And, and, and I don't want to pick on this person, but um, he, he paints. He's a painter. There okay. was a famous, let's just say, there's a famous Christian painter. Okay. And next thing you know, he's writing novels. And I'm thinking... Those are very different skills, okay? <laughs> but why is he suddenly writing ghost-written, maybe, I don't know, you know, why is he writing novels? Well, because people think it'll sell, because he's a big name. And you start to realize that what we have, and this is years and years and years ago, um, is that what we're, we're building personalities, and then the personalities are becoming marketers. And, the, and they're marketing themselves across platforms. They have brands, brand management. Yeah. And then the other thing, you know, I was talking to an evangelist, a sort of young up-and-coming evangelist. And he, he's somebody who's um, been – had one foot sort of in secular musical culture and one foot in evangelical culture. And he says the only people who have entourages bigger than hip-hop stars are celebrity pastors. Oh, no. And, you know, and I was reflecting on, on that, and I was like, yeah. Oh. I mean, how many times have you seen, like, a major Christian figure, like, rolling six deep into a conference, like, with <laughs> surrounded by five other folks? And, and we, we absolutely have created a culture. And sometimes one of the reasons why they have entourages isn't because they sit around and say, well, I'm so big now that I have an entourage, is, well, so many people swarm them mm. that they need – kind of protection for example and and I started to realize after a while that if if someone is starting to believe they're sort of like Zeus mm. on atop Mount Olympus it's because a lot of people they interact with have helped convince them that they're Zeus yeah. Yeah. and what is so Christian celebrity culture isn't just a fault of the celebrity it's often a natural operation of human nature on somebody who is subjected to or enjoys massive amounts of adulation. Yeah. And so that is – it takes a very, very strong person to uh, encounter an enormous amount of adulation and come out of it intact and decent. Uh, it's one reason why I read my Twitter replies to just keep me grounded. <laughs> Help me understand that, like – there's a lot of people who actually hate me. Yeah. That's, you know. Oh. So this is the question we often ask people on this show, thinking about what you just said. Like, I got to be honest. I'm a pastor. I love the church. And sometimes I look at the church and I'm like, man, we're in big trouble. Like, things yeah. are going in a bad direction. Yeah. So I do want to end and just give you a couple minutes with this. Are you hopeful for the future of the church? And if you're hopeful, what gives you that hope? I'm 100% hopeful. Um, and what gives me the hope? Uh, that's a great question. I was asked, I was speaking at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and, and someone said, what are you reading right now to sort of get you through these really troubled times? And I gave, like, the most evangelical answer ever. I said, the Bible. <laughs> but from a very specific frame, and that specific frame is every single syllable of the New Testament is written to a people facing persecution and challenges that we cannot fathom, mm -hmm. okay, that we just cannot come to grips with. You know, we think Christians have a problem in the United States of America. Try being the early church. Exactly. 
And yet, when you read the New Testament, you, what's, miss, you, what's missing is woe is us. Mm. What's present is love your enemies. What's present is this hope for the future. What's present is this love for Jesus. What's present is nothing but an endless stream of faith and hope and love. Mm. And that's written to people who are being chewed up by lions, who are meeting in caves. Yeah. And so I'm sitting here and I'm like, you know, I, I, tried to, I wrote a thing some time ago where I where uh, I, someone had been talking about how we're in a really negative time because Tim Keller was denied a re, uh, an award by a university. That's right. And I said, imagine explaining this hostility to <laughs> Apostle Paul. And I'd say, you'd start, well, there's this very famous pastor, and Paul's tops you. He goes, wait, stop. <laughs> you mean pastors are famous yeah. when you live? And he was going to give this, re- receive this award but he was denied, but spoke to a packed house anyway. Wait, he wasn't scourged with whips? <laughs> what kind of utopia That's are you right. living in? And so, you know, we just need a little bit of perspective. And if there can be faith and hope and love when there are lions, mm. you know, the idea that we're in too much adversity to live with faith and hope and love now is just scandalously That's wrong. Right. That's right. Well, thank you for that, because I, I want to hold on to the hope. I believe... Uh, fully in the church mm-hmm. and sometimes it's hard to hold on to that hope so so that's a really good word man it's been so fun uh, what are you going to eat while you're in chicago are you getting deep dish pizza little portillos <laughs> is there something you're getting or is it in and out but is this chicago really i'm in wheaton it's out here we got we got giordano's we got uh, really we got it all for you like, i've been to chicago man. and it doesn't look like this <laughs> that is a that is a fair statement but <laughs> but you can get the pizza okay, you can get good, the uh, you good. get the beef again david is in town tonight to speak at Barrow's Auditorium on the campus of Wheaton College, where he will be speaking about freedom of speech, about cancel culture, about things that are really pertinent for the church and culturally right now. And uh, the Wheaton Center for Faith and Public uh, Politics and Economics does a lot of these. In October, they're going to have Paul Rimmer here, a top UK intelligence advisor, talking about US and UK intelligence relations. That's on October 6th. And then to talk about Israel's technology boom with Yinam Cohen uh, on November the 1st. And so David is part of this tonight at Barrow's Auditorium. Last question, why don't you give everybody where they can find you, where they can read you, where they can connect with you online? Well, if you follow me on Twitter, and I hope you're not on Twitter, but if you're, un- <laughs> if you're unfortunate enough to be on, you can follow me at, at David A. French. That's right. uh, but I write uh, twice weekly for The Dispatch, thedispatch.com. And also I write for The Atlantic. So any of those, but I consolidate everything at Twitter and you can, and I'll, I point you to everything that I write there. And I will tell you, David is one of the positive Twitter follows out there. It's <laughs> not a ton of them, but one of them. Dave, thanks so much. It's great to meet you. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Do you have to change your faith to agree with Democrats regarding abortion? And then the role that shame plays in our lives. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Aubrey. Uh, we missed you the first right. hour. We'll have to explain it a little bit. But anyone who's been listening, I got to spend the last hour with David French, our friend David French. But we were missing Aubrey. He missed you. He, he missed I you. Have, he told us. I have so much FOMO. I was te- we'll tell the people. I can tell the people why I wasn't there. 
But I was texting Laura Finch, our new producer, the whole time, like, send me pictures. How's it going? Tell me things. <laughs> so I have another, I think last week I told the people I had a couple kids with COVID. I have another son with COVID. And we were, con- we loved David Finch enough that we did not want to accidentally give him COVID. I don't really care about you, bad. Ryan, if you got nope. it, but I do care about him. So. Therefore, I wasn't able to go, but I'm so glad you got to have a conversation with him, Brian. And I can't wait along with our listeners to catch up on the podcast because I heard it was awesome, but I haven't listened yet. It was great. So anybody who didn't hear it, I, I it was recorded. I went out there this morning out to Wheaton College where he is speaking tonight. You can still get there at 7 p.m. at Barrow's Auditorium. He's speaking about cancel culture, about free speech and the importance of it. Uh, I would encourage people to go out there, but he's super generous with his time. And we just sat there and just chatted about all sorts of stuff. I realized you could talk to David French for two days, let alone an hour. So such a brilliant mind. Yeah, it was. And so that was fun. But yeah, we missed you. It would have been fun to have you there. But Thank here we are. Uh, and so people might be like, well, why are you able to be together now? We're also doing this via remote uh, technology because COVID is COVID now. Whatever you believe about it, you know, if, if you've got it in your family, it's much easier just to keep a you couple distance for a couple and days. You don't want to get other people sick, even if it's not, That's what not I mean. that big of a deal. Yeah. We just want to, yeah. So, anyway, thank goodness for technology and uh, way to go, Brian, interviewing David French. Well done. It was really fun. And uh, we should ask this question. We've got some older people out there probably listening. FOMO? FOMO? Oh, great. We should uh, we should define it. Fear of missing out. Fear of yeah. missing out. Yeah. There's okay. another one I was just reading about. Fobel, fear of being left out. I feel like that's kind of the same. It's the same concept, but I felt like both. You and David French were going to become best friends without me. This is going to turn into a Grinds My Gears segment about people who only speak in acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> or wait, or like just shorten words. Like I feel like that's totally Gen Z is like to say fam and or famo uh, okay. instead of family or like you know, there's many, many versions of that. We'll have to we'll have my to talk about kids that do that all the time and it drives me up a wall, but that will be old guy radio for another time. <laughs> Uh, all right, Aubrey, you and I have spent a lot of our time over the last couple of weeks, months, uh talking about abortion and uh, we we know that our culture is very divided on the issue. It's become a hot button political issue. You and I have been trying to tell people, don't let it be a political issue. This is a moral issue. Um, but it, with the election coming up with the midterms, this is front and center. So absolutely. Vice President Kamala Harris said something interesting the other day that uh, I don't think we're going to agree with. But but more so along the lines that you and I've been talking about lately that both sides of the argument are trying to appeal to faith arguments. Yeah. They're trying to appeal to faith. And so Kamala Harris was in Wisconsin the other day and she said this, she said, you do not have to quote, change your faith or abandon deeply held beliefs to agree that the government should not be telling a woman what to do with her body. Let's read this again. She said, you don't have to change your faith or abandon your faith or deeply held beliefs to agree. The government should not be telling a woman what to do with her body. So um, the first interesting thing there is just the um, the appealing to faith. Yeah, that keeps you are right. Like we are seeing this. Like somebody had a meeting somewhere and said, "Here's our new tactic. (laughs) We're going to appeal to all the faith based, you know, pro life people and tell them." They can still be Christians and don't have to be pro-life. It's wild how we're seeing this happen. And I think 
I think people need to be aware. I know this isn't the point, but I think people need to be aware that this is a strategy. You know, yes. this is this is a, a strategic move to get your political votes, to get your power, to get your attention. Just just be mindful of it. You know, whatever, wherever you decide to vote, Christian, like be mindful that this is a strategy right here. It is a strategy. They're, anyway, go they, ahead. Yes, they they are appealing uh, to the evangelical, as we yeah. like to say here. Yeah. Uh, but let's take her argument here. Let's take her argument. She says you do not have to abandon your faith mm-hmm. in order to. Of course, she went to the government not telling a woman what to do with her body. Yeah. Nothing about the baby. Right. Um, what do we think about just on the surface of what she said there? Yeah. I mean, that's what's so funny about it. It's like, yeah, you don't have. To, I mean. I don't think the government should tell women what to do or not to do with their body. This is why, again, like this is not a political issue for me. This is this is a moral theological issue. So really, in my mind, I know this is Pollyannish and naive because we're talking about the election. We're talking about politicians right now. This really isn't about the government. This is about like caring for the the least of those, the most vulnerable in our society, which, by the way, this is where this totally breaks down for me, Brian. And and I'll just be upfront. I know our listeners come to this with totally different uh, viewpoints, and I'm not trying to make a controversial take. During COVID, I was very willing and very okay with the government telling me and other people to put masks on for my protection, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And really, the people in this same pro-life camp honestly were also okay with that because mm-hmm. they saw that it was a protective measure for the most vulnerable in our society. But we can't apply that same logic when it comes to babies. And this to me is um, a a complete discrepancy in the argument. It's like, no, no, no. What you're saying is you're willing for the government to uh, say things you should or shouldn't do for your body uh, around certain areas. But when it comes to this specific issue, you're not okay with it. It's inconsistent mm. is what I'm trying to say. But yeah, I mean, I actually think, sure, like Jesus would would be absolutely okay with me saying that women can have agency over their body at the same time for those of us who are christians we believe ultimately that our surrender and our submission belongs to the lord yeah so that even includes the decisions that we we have the agency to make about our body and we believe the most empowering decision is for uh is towards life again i mean literally the most life-giving decision is towards life there's two interesting ways like i would call them tactics she uses here one is to nobody's suggesting you have to give up your faith right that's not that's not what we're suggesting and two it has been the the tactic here to never talk about the of the baby to never You're right Brian. never let's talk just about not even let's just pretend like there's not well, even a child at stake here and yeah. here's why because everybody would agree that on a grand scale all of us particularly in this conversation, women, but all of us should have agency over our own body. Not even really knowing what that always means with everything. We don't, there are other things the government doesn't give you agency to do with your body, but that's a whole nother topic. Right. Um, But they're missing the little uh, thing here that is kind of important to the conversation that maybe because of our faith, we are driven to protect the little agent to provide the ability for that body inside of you to get to the point where they have that's agency. Right. That's right. I mean, I think that's, I think that's key. And this is, goes back to what you've been saying all along, Brian, which I do think is bottom line, the argument for people in their souls, 
do you think this is a baby or not? Yep. That's what this you, all comes down to. Because if you think it's a baby, right? If you believe that that heartbeat is actually the baby's heartbeat, if you believe that that's life in there, then you have to make a very moral choice to say, I am ending a life. Mm-hmm. That could yes. be a blessing. That could be meaningful. That could grow up to contribute to this world. That could. It's created in the image of a, God. Yes. Right. If you don't, then this really is a, I mean, if you don't believe that's a life, then really this is, I think why people are like, why is this a big deal? Of course, yes. we can make whatever decision they want. Right. It really comes down to the science and what you believe about uh, theologically about when life begins. And for you and I, we would say at conception, this baby is made in the image of and likeness of God. That's there you go. I would say uh, this is a political tactic and we're going to see the politicalization of this issue more and more. That's why you and I keep wanting to say it's a moral issue. Yeah, Uh, this is not a right versus left issue. Right. Uh, Don't allow this just to be used for to drive people to the polls. We want to save the lives of babies here. So uh, that's where we're starting today. Coming up next, uh, one of our favorite pastors who we quote often, Scott Sauls, tweeted something about shame that I found really interesting. I want to talk to you about it next year on The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. It's good to have you with us today. And hey, if you missed the first hour of the show, which was a really uh, special time that I got to spend interviewing David French uh, over at Wheaton College uh, earlier today, Aubrey was not able to come because... Well, little little thing called COVID in the house. Not for her, but one of her kids. That's right. That's right. Uh, So, but if you miss the time, David French is fascinating. He's brilliant. Keeps you thinking. I'd encourage you to go get our podcast wherever it is. You get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com. So David French is from Nashville, Aubrey. There's another pastor from Nashville named Scott Sauls. Scott Sauls is the pastor of, oh, I'm going to get it right, Christ Presbyterian Church, I believe that it's called. That sounds right to me. That sounds right to me. All, there's so many Nashville churches and Nashville pastors in Nashville. I, I don't know what's happening. There's like a, we got to get down there or they got to we come back here or something. We were joking off air with David French this morning because he's from Nashville and has lived there for a while. And he was talking about the changing dynamics and how many people are flooding the area and that it's like uh, it's interesting and somewhat of an issue and it's changing. It's just been wild for them, apparently. So wow. uh, Scott, Scott Sauls writes lots of books, tweets a lot. Great uh, blog at scottsauls.com. I would just want to read you something he tweeted, Aubrey, and uh, I want to unpack it because it's around the concept of shame and mm-hmm. this idea of shame and what role does it play in our faith? Is it? okay to feel shame? What do we do when we feel shame? Where does shame even come from? So he said this, the older I get, the more convinced I become that every person without exception is dealing with shame. It has been said, be kind because everyone you meet is fighting a hidden battle. And then he said, I think that's true. So what do you think about that? What do you think about the fact? Let's start with the beginning of his tweet where he just says every person without exception is dealing with shame. Um, So I wrote a book about that. My first book called Overcomer. So I think he's just stealing that from me, basically. But no, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I I think even scripturally, we see that in the earliest narrative of the Bible, which is that when Adam and Eve sinned, their experience, uh, the consequence was 
shame, right? And shame actually mm. means to hide. And over and over and over again, we follow in Adam and Eve's footsteps. And anytime we feel ashamed, we hide. We hide from God. We hide from other people. And I think so. I actually just tweeted this funnily enough. Like, I think so much of discipleship is helping people overcome their shame and learn to be brave, like to mm. come out of that hiding place. And um, I, I absolutely think every single person deals with it. Now, some more than others. I think there are some personality types that are more prone to shame than others. But if shame is not, I'm not good enough, something is wrong with me. Like stereotypically people say shame is about who you are. Guilt is about what you do. Hmm. If we, if we generally on some, on some level or another, people deal with shame. You know, what's interesting. I don't know if you saw this Brian on Instagram, Rich Viotis posted this about shame and I thought this was such a strong word. He said, um, I'm going to read it to you. He said, Adam and Eve hide behind a tree naked and covered in shame. Jesus hangs on a tree naked mm. and conquers shame. He says the cross of Jesus is the great reversal. Oh, that's good. Isn't that that's good? Really I was like, yeah. dang, that's like mic drop a word. But I, I think ultimately that's probably why Saul's is saying what he is saying that if everyone is dealing with shame, then um, what a great word and truth and healing we find in Jesus, who is ultimately the remover of our shame. And I even mm -hmm. love, mm -hmm. I could talk about this for a long time. I even love in the garden, you know, Adam and Eve, they, they are hiding from God. They make these little, you know, pathetic clothing, shame clothing, really from fig leaves. But then one of the beautiful things that God does, like even though there's consequence for their sin and they're kicked out of the garden, like one of the beautiful things that God does is remove those shame garments and replaces them with clothing made by his own hands. Like we see that uh, shame healing in the garden, even mm -hmm. after sin. And I, I think this has always been the work of what God does is, is removing our shame and, and moving us to a place of honor before him. So somebody tweeted uh, a reply to him. As, as you said, you've written a book on this. So I didn't what you said. He says, this person tweeted back such a strange thing to say. I have lots in my past. I've been ashamed of praise God for Christ. While there are things I need to repent of, I'm not dealing with shame. If a Christian is, it's because they need to repent or they have a false view of the gospel. So this idea, this idea that, Hey, we've been cleansed. Yeah, uh, we've been forgiven. So yep. therefore, uh, if I might put words in this person's mouth, shame is an indicator that you have not embraced that cleansing. You have not embraced that forgiveness and you're still holding on to the sin that you've committed. I'm so I, that I laughed when you read that because it's so like, oh, let me just shame people for feeling ashamed. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm so sick of people being like, oh, you don't need the gospel. Like once you've been saved by Jesus, you're fine now. You're, it's like. Well, this is what we talk about. Like the gospel is the pool we swim in, not the diving board, right? It is the mm. race, not the finish line. Like we need the gospel every single day of our lives. And I actually think, and I think other theologians would say this, the, the deeper, more mature, older we grow in our Christian faith, I think we realize the depth of our sin and shame and how desperately we still need the gospel after all these years. I think that is a sign of maturity, not I never deal with anything because I know Jesus and I've gotten the gospel right in my head. I just don't think that person's accurate. But this mm. is where I say, I do think some personalities are more prone to feeling shame. 
others might uh others are wrestling with other things you know what i mean yeah, yeah. i don't know what do you think about that response so it like everything it has a little bit of truth to it but yeah it's, it's overly critical it's overly like uh, like here's the deal in heaven like in perfection in eternity i'm not going to feel shame right Absolutely. like these types of things but there's yeah. still consequences to things i've done there's still consequences even though i've been forgiven and cleansed of feeling shame over this action or this or whatever else it might be um, I do want to give you a chance to give a word to the person out there who's struggling. They feel like mm. shame and guilt are just yeah. a weight around their neck. That yeah. They can't get past what happened 20 minutes ago or 20 years yeah. ago. What would you, what's a word that you would say of freedom for that person? You know, my favorite verse, one of my favorite verses is Psalm, Psalm 34, 17, where, where David says, those who look to God are radiant. Their faces are never covered in shame. And um, the wild thing is we actually had a guest on uh, yesterday, the author of the Ascent devotional talked about this moment in scripture in, in Psalm 34, David's writing after he was literally covered in shame. David uh, was running from Saul. So he's disgraced. This is think about a shame honor culture. So he moves from being honored amongst people and before Saul to being disgraced. He's on the run. He's hiding. He pretends to be a crazy man in the king of Gath's court the Bible says that David literally like drools on his beard, makes strange markings on the wall. And he's able to escape because of that. And then he hides in a cave for, I can't remember how long, a couple of years after that. Um, but it's in that moment where David says those words, those who look to God are radiant. Their faces are never covered in shame. And I, I think that's a word for any of us. Like when we, when we turn to God and say, God, I, I, here I am ashamed again. Here I am feeling not good enough again, not complete, not whole. Something is wrong with me. Uh, would you, as you've always done, Lord, remove my shame and replace it with radiance? Mm. And I think the good news of the gospel, the good news of the cross is that Jesus bore our sin and our shame. And so there is freedom, there's transformation, there's wholeness that can come through a life in Christ Yeah, as we continue to surrender our shame to him. That's a good word. That's a good word. So I think Scott Sauls is right here. Everyone's dealing with something. So always keep that in mind. Uh, coming up next, Aubrey, there's a fascinating new trend among men uh, for this organization called F3. It was written about at the New York Times. Uh, David oh. French wrote about it earlier this week. I want to share it with you and try to guess why is it booming right now? We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, so glad to have you with us on a Thursday afternoon. Hey, if you've missed any of the show, including the time we were able to spend with David French earlier in the first hour, let me encourage you to go get the podcast wherever it is. Get your podcast, just subscribe, rate, review. That really does help us out a bunch. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Aubrey, have you heard about this new craze among men called F3? Are you familiar with So, this? believe it or not, I am, and only because Kevin and I are, we lead a renewal community, which I think I've said before on the show is just like our fancy way of saying a small group. And, um, and one of the guys in the group just got invited to this F3, like, exercise group they're all running some like crazy relay race together that lasts like 24 hours or something oh, is like that, that right but he was like surprised he got invited by a jewish neighbor but they like pray at f3 and so he was like 
saying that he was surprised that his neighbor, who's not a person of faith or a Christian faith anyway, would be willing to join this thing and pray to the Christian God with this. You know, it was really kind of interesting, but he loves it. I mean, he spoke so highly of it. Just relationally, it was a cool time for guys to get together. But I didn't realize it was sort of sweeping the nation. It is. It kind of has kind of birthed out of Texas and has gone from there. Let me give you the background. This is out of the New York Times. The New York Times wrote about it this week. It says F3 stands for Fitness, Fellowship, and Faith, a fast-growing network of men's workouts that combine exercise with spiritually inflected camaraderie. After its founding in 2011 as a free outdoor group workout, its popularity exploded during the pandemic, expanding to some 3,400 groups across the country. Uh, Aiming to solve, as John Lambert, a.k.a. Slaughter, what a nickname, (laughs) I want that nickname. That's awesome. He's the network's chief executive. Listen to what he described as the, the popularity of this. He says, a problem that society at large and men definitely didn't even know they had middle age male loneliness. Mm. So this is now it's primarily a workout group. Like you're not yeah. going to go there and just hang out on the side. They meet at like five in the, like it's kind of hardcore, but, uh, their actual goal beyond workout is that they see kind of a pandemic, if you will, of middle-aged male loneliness. And David French, who we had on earlier, but we didn't get a chance to talk to him about, just last week wrote uh, about this, a short story of men. And he said the crisis of masculinity is rooted in technology, but can be resolved through relationships. And he wrote this off of this article in the New York times, Aubrey middle-aged male loneliness. I'm a middle-aged male. You're married to a middle-aged. I think so. I do. I I think, I think Kevin does too. So are you surprised at all that this sort of thing is taking off as kind of an antidote to that? Um, am I surprised? No. I mean, I feel like I've seen movements like this in the past, whether it's uh, CrossFit or some version of like, we're going to do like manly stuff out in the woods kind of thing. So I'm not particularly surprised by it. I actually think it's pretty cool. I don't know. I mean, I'm like, I'm thinking of my husband, Kevin. So I'm just trying to be practical for a minute. He loves exercise. Like, you know, like if he's got a Sabbath, he's not like laying around taking a nap. He's Right. Riding his bike to Lake Geneva and back for 12 hours the whole day. You know what I mean? And I'm not exaggerating. That's him. But I don't know that he would join a group of random strangers and do that. So I, gotcha. I it's interesting to me that this is compelling. I wonder if this is compelling for extroverts um, or a certain personality type, not for everybody. But I want to hear what you think, because I think for women, it's easier to kind of go, yeah, why wouldn't you get together and do this? What do you think as a guy? Yeah. So let me give you this one stat that I think gets at it. David French quoted this, that between 1990 and 2021, the percentage of men who reported to have, quote, no close friends quintupled from 3% to 15%. Wow. The percentage who reported 10 or more close friends shrank from 40% to 15%. And so the statistics say this, but Aubrey, I, I think... Uh, when men get to be middle-aged, I do believe uh, David and I were actually talking about this off the air earlier. And then as we kept talking, I was like, man, I wish we were recording this. Mm. His point in the article is think about where your best male friends, if you're a guy, think where your best friends are from. 
there are places where you have shared experience. So David was in the army. He was in Iraq. And he said to this day, many of his best friends are from there. Uh, He said the other place, and this is the one that I agreed with, is we a lot of our best friends go back to college. Why? We're living together, shared experience, spending the day, all of this stuff together. What guys don't tend to do well, speaking with a big, large, broad brush here, I understand. But generally speaking, what guys don't do well is, hey, do you want to go out for coffee and talk about our feelings? (laughs) That's true. You're not like with my girlfriends. We're like, let's go out for a wine night and shopping at TJ Maxx. And we were like so deeply connected by the end of it that we're like crying in the car together. That's not a typical guy thing to do you're not calling up your best friend and saying do you want to go have a wine night at cooper's hawk with me oh that's true that is very true uh and so on top of that let's add a couple more things from middle-aged men tend to be married tend to have kids uh Mm. again i'm about to paint with a really big broad cultural brush here so if this isn't your family i understand it feel free to yell at at but you understand how i'm speaking here more Broadly, men tend to work more outside the house and have more responsibilities outside the house. So therefore, coming with that is the guilt or just the desire. Mm. When I'm not working, I want to be home. I want to be home. I want to be with my kids. Yeah. Right. Right. Or I want to sit on the couch and watch a game because I'm tired, whatever else it might be. All of those things, kind of men's general wirings and all of these things, I think lend toward loneliness. But here's the deal. Yeah. Men need friends as much as women do. Yeah. And a right. lot of us guys are like, I'm fine, whatever. It's not true. And so French is saying this type of thing, while this might not be your thing, this type of thing is actually more about camaraderie than it is about working out. It's more about I'm going to do something physical with other guys and we're going to have a goal and we're going to do this. than it is about working out. I do. I think this is a huge problem that the church, quite frankly, has not done a great job addressing. Yeah, it's interesting because I am. Th- I, I was just thinking, like, has the church done anything to address this? And I feel like if we have, it's been uh, sort of the stereotypical things. Like, we'll then come to a small group. And but talk about small, your feelings. Yeah, and the small group might be, again, I know we're now we're both speaking stereotypically, whatever. But the yeah. small group might be a little more, quote unquote, feminine in nature in that that's the expectation. Come be vulnerable. Talk about these really deep things. And that can happen. I mean, I've been in small groups like that with men, but that might not be the best starting point Mm -hmm. or the best place to really develop deep friendships. And I do wonder, I actually was talking to a church yesterday. They hosted a, um, they hosted a star Wars 5k. They called it (laughs) may the core, may the course be with you. It was open. It was open for men and women, of course, and kids. But you know, the concept was everybody getting together, putting on star Wars costumes, blasting star Wars music and running. And that, I thought that's sort of the same idea, right? Like, let's do something. Let's achieve something. Let's be active together. Can friendship form from that? Here's a question that I have. Like, I'm not trying to push back. I'm trying to ask this very, very serious question. Do we begin this book with this kind of thing to air into the Driscoll? No, I think this is actually, I actually talked to David French about that. And I think this is a, I think this is a pushback against it when done okay. well. He spoke okay. of the fake masculinity. You know, yeah. I, he he was really funny. He said to me, "Be cautious of anybody who tells you how much they work out." <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> be cautious of anyone who like talks. He said this actually. He said, "Be cautious of anyone who has to tell you how masculine they are." 
Oh, interesting. And I actually think this is a pushback to it. People like other guys going, this all feels phony. What's real? Where are their real relationships? So yes, because I said to him, I said, I feel like 10 years ago, this is all any pastor was talking about. Oh, this is how much I work out during the day. This is this. And he's like, yeah, yeah. I think this is the opposite, actually. Men okay. going, that wasn't real. I need something more. So mm. uh, let me read his last paragraph when he's talking about this. David said, what is the short story of modern men? Life has changed forever. Ideologues pull men and boys into destructive and unsustainable extremes. Yet virtuous purpose can still be found in the fundamental building blocks of the good life. Only a man can be a husband. Only a man can be a father. And men need male friends. If a man can fill those roles with integrity and courage, then doubts about his masculinity should not ever darken his heart. Uh, it's well done. And and I, I would encourage people out there. Why is something where people where men get up at five in the morning to work out exploding across yeah. the country? Yeah, uh, what wow. is it? All right, Aubrey, I want to end our show coming up next, talking about a little stroll that I took. We'll call it a stroll down memory lane. And I oh, want to talk to you about the importance of place and the importance of memory and that kind of stuff. It's going to do that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, I'm Brian Fromm. Last part of the show, if you've missed any of today's show, let me encourage you to go get the podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, review. It's a special day today. Here's we got to spend, or I got to spend the first hour with David French. Aubrey was invited to come, but a uh, little, little thing called COVID in her home. and Little so, thing called COVID. So I just sat there like, like uh, looking through the window, feeling sorry for myself, <laughs> feeling, but feeling a uh, lot of missing out. Here's the deal, Aubrey. As fun as it was to... Uh, interview David French this morning, and that was the highlight. What also was fun is it took place at a little place called Wheaton College. And so I've heard of it. You have heard of it. Here's what was interesting. Aubrey and I, if you listen to the show at all, you know that Aubrey and I are both graduates of Wheaton College. Uh, I was the class of 1999. Aubrey was the class of 2000. Uh, and so uh, let me get sentimental here for a second. Uh, I parked over by the chapel. Okay. Yep. And had to walk to the MSC. Have you been in there lately? Well, MSC, where uh, where our SIPO used to be, our college post office, and also the stoop? I have been there recently because, as you remember, I am a chronic student. So I am actually a never-ending grad student at Wheaton. So I have been there recently, and it has, uh, they have glowed up since you and I were there. The shell is the same, but not one part of inside it is the same. So we did the interview in there in the poli-sci office. Uh, in the conference room. But here's the deal. As much as things have changed at the college, walking the campus has not changed. Yeah. And it's the strangest thing. When you when I walked by the chapel, now you've been there recently. I've mm -hmm. been there for like football, but I haven't actually been there, been there for any in particular reason recently. So when I walked by the chapel, I was like flooded with memories. Like, oh yeah, Aww. do you remember? Do you remember? I, I was having this memory of like, oh yeah, we used to go to chapel and then I'd meet Carrie, my Aww. girlfriend at the time, my wife. Now we go walk the class together. Here's Cute. what really gets me the most when I'm walking on campus is when the chapel bells chime, when those, they go off. Uh -huh. I don't know if you've ever felt this. When those bells go, we've been out of college now for 
what 1999 to 23 years don't say how long don't say how long i've been out for 23 years yeah um when those bells go off when those chimes i feel like i'm 20 and walking on campus like i'm immediately like i gotta go to uh, to get it's time to get to chapel (laughs) i gotta go to class or oh where am i meeting carrie or one of my friends am i meeting one it's the weirdest thing and today it got me thinking i even called you from there because we talked about something about finishing the show and I even told you, I'm like, it's super strange to be walking. Because 95% of the campus is the same as when you and I were there. Uh, it was really strange ago. for me when I first started taking master's, uh, my master's courses there because I would, uh, most of my classes were in the Billy Graham Center. But going up and down, anyone who went to Wheaton will know this, going up and down the stairs in the Billy Graham Center to class, that brought back such nostalgia. I don't, 100%. now that I've been there more consistently, I don't feel that way, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, it was so weird to like, be there as an adult, remembering my 18 year old self, like going up and down those stairs with my yes. heavy backpack and running late to class and seeing people that you wave to. And then Wheaton was weird. You make eye contact with people when you, <laughs> around. so, I mean, I just like have so many, it, the smell of it, like it it's is a smell. wild how like your, your younger self just popped back so quickly. The sights, the sounds, the smells. So just when you just, back. when you just mentioned the stairwell at the Billy Graham center Uh because I had all my communications classes were downstairs. All my Bible classes were upstairs. Upstairs. I was a, I was a Bible theology and a communications double major. I spent all my time in the Billy Graham center. Uh, It was that same stairwell. You go downstairs for communications. You go upstairs for Bible. Yeah. That stairwell has a very specific smell. It does. It absolutely that does. Takes you back in time. So it was really fun to do. Here's my question for you. Because I know if okay. I went into if I went into saga where we ate food, it would have a smell. Uh-huh. If I went to Trader yep. Dorm, it would have a smell. Right? All yep. of these things or memories <laughs> to them. Uh if I drove past today, um where uh Arena Theater was. That's where you spent a lot I of spent time. A lot of time there, yeah. I'm sure walking into there would be with memories. It yes. got me thinking today. What's the importance of like place and memory mm, and yeah. um, nostalgia and looking yeah. back? We're a very forward looking culture. We run yes. forward, forward, forward. But sometimes it's really important, isn't it, to go like, oh, I want to remember back 23 years ago how good it was then and where my life is at now. Uh, looking back, kind of uh, place is an is an important thing, don't you think? You know, it's an interesting question. I actually think there's there are people who are writing about this concept of like place versus non place, mm. and I, I'm not I I don't know enough to know exactly what they mean. But even thinking about I'm taking an Old Testament class and thinking about how for God and God's people, um. God placing his people in a specific location has always been a part of his blessing them. And Mm. so it it strikes me that there is something like very human and also very divine in our need to connect to a specific place. And whether that's um, our homes, whether that's where we grew up, whether that's a place where our, you know, we've joked about this on the show, but I do think there's something to this, like your soul feels connected to like, you're on the beach in Florida and you just feel like I am where I belong right now. Or mm-hmm. you're, you know, on the mountains and you're like, I am so what, this is what my soul has needed. There is something about the importance of place, memory, 
uh, nostalgia that I do think is a blessing from God and somehow helps us remember the way he's guided us and the way Mm -hmm. he's been good to us. And our non-place seasons, whether that's a season of transition uh, in between a job loss or maybe a marriage has ended, maybe you're going through something difficult, or maybe it's just been kind of a yucky place. Like I, I think one of the uh, experts talk about non-place as a, like Vegas, which I know sounds kind of funny because mm-hmm. Vegas has a lot of history, but because it's a little bit dark and seedy and brings about addiction and hardship, like those types of seasons or those types of places, I think we kind of go, oh, I don't want to go back there again. I don't want to. That's not where I want to live. I want to live in the place that feels like God's blessing for me. I don't, I'm just pontificating on the concept. I don't really know where I'm landing, except that there does seem to be something important about God moving his people from place to place and giving them like a home, a land, an anchor point that they can remember his goodness from. Yeah, absolutely. I know I feel this. You grew up not around here as well. You grew up right. in Oklahoma. I grew up right. in New Jersey. When I go home, and I very rarely go home anymore because my parents have moved out here, my brother's yeah. out here. But yeah. when I go home, it, there's home, and you and you remember all these memories flood you by totally. by smells, by sights, by places you haven't been for thirty years. And I, I think we lose that often as a culture. We're very transient. We move on, and we always move forward. And I guess I just wanted to end with that experience today because it was five minutes of my day. It was ten minutes, but there were it was just nice. To walk across that. campus. Uh, and there's, you know, when you go to where you first met your spouse, when you go to where you went to college, where you go, just allow yourself to remember and not move on. I love that you referenced the Old Testament where God regularly is calling his people to remember and and to do that. So anyway, yeah. little walk down uh, uh, down memory, memory lane. lane today. That's so fun. I love you it. And, you and I should, we should do it one of our shows remotely from, uh, from Arena Theater or maybe from Traber Dorm. What dorm were you uh, in freshman year? I was in uh, Fisher Dorm, the big freshman uh, dorm. Ah, yeah. We don't want to do that dorm. Nope, nope, yeah, nope. We'll go over to Traver. Yeah. I actually don't think I want to go back to Fisher. I'll be fine if I never walk in there again. So I'll go to Traver with you. Perfect. It okay. might be all awkward right. for you to be in Traver, but we'll do it anyway. <laughs> it's an all-boys all dorm, right? Am yes. I remembering that right? Oh, yes. yeah. I'm, I'm definitely going to be there. That won't be awkward. <laughs> well, we're glad that you were with us today. Uh, if you missed any of the show, go get the podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Join us tomorrow from four until six. For Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.